Imagine what it would be like if one day, while taking a nap in your favorite easy chair, your family, with the help of a doctor, anesthetized you, kept you from waking up, then transported you to the nearest airport, put you on a supersonic jet, and flew you to some remote location, some beach in the Cayman Islands or the, the, a cabin in British Columbia. And then stuck you in a similar easy chair and just let the anesthesia wear off. And eventually you would wake up. And when you would wake up, you'd be in a totally different place. And you'd think, where am I? And you would jump to your feet and you'd look around and you would be confused. This isn't your house. You'd run to the window and you're in the forest or on a beach cottage overlooking the ocean. You'd be totally confused. You wouldn't know where to go. You cry out. No one answers. It'd probably be very terrifying for most of us. Because you would have no idea how you got there. You would have no idea about your location your surroundings, if this was your house, if you could use anything, if you were kidnapped, it would just be a mystery. Now imagine how different it would be if your family told you beforehand, you know what's going to happen is, is one day when you're taking a nap, we're going to drug you. And we're going to fly you to a very neat place and we're going to show you some pictures right now. This is where it's located and this is what it looks like. And we are going to have an all expense paid vacation there and just have a great time. But we're going to get you there by surprise. And sure, you don't know when it's coming. You know, it's coming eventually. And all of a sudden, one day you wake up and there you are on the beach or in the mountains and you would be startled. But the the shock wouldn't be near as bad because you'd remember Ah, I know where I am. I know why I'm here. I know how I got here. And so just that little bit of information beforehand would equip you to deal with all the new surroundings that you are going to be encountering. Well, this morning, we aren't going to be looking at Psalm 145 and we aren't going to be looking at 1 Timothy We aren't going to be doing questions and answers, but what we are going to be doing this morning is we're going to be looking at the gospel of Luke. This is going to be new territory, a totally different surrounding, a totally different kind of genre or literature, a whole different um, place in the Bible, a different author. And so what we need to do this morning is we need to look at a lot of the background information to familiarize you with where we're going to be so that when we get there, you'll know why we're there and how we got there and you won't be so confused or disoriented. Last week, we looked at the Gospels in general. We touched on a few unique qualities of each we learned that there are four gospel accounts matthew mark luke and john each of these gospel accounts tells us the same good news there is just one gospel but it is a gospel that is presented by four different people in four different ways emphasizing four different themes 
And each of them together gives us a very full picture of the gospel story. And we learn that the first three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are called the synoptic gospels, a big word that means similar. They are similar gospels because they're structured in kind of the same way. They start out at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, kind of talk about his ministry up north in the area of Galilee and his ministry in uh, the area around Jerusalem, which culminates in his his, uh, trial and crucifixion and burial and resurrection. That is the general structure of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John's gospel is unique because it is a gospel that is based off of seven miracles. So after John the Baptist gets introduced at the beginning, uh, there are these seven miracles, which are kind of the engine that drive the general content of John's gospel up until about chapter 13. And then the standard Death, burial, and resurrection of Christ are then undertaken just as in the other Gospels. Now we learn that Matthew writes to Jews. He writes to Jews because he wants to show them that Jesus is the Messiah, the long-awaited King. Mark writes to Gentiles. And he emphasizes action. He emphasizes that Jesus was the servant, the son of man who came to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Luke writes to Gentiles and Jews. We'll see this more this morning. And he presents Jesus as the son of man. John writes to Jews to present Jesus as the son of God. So what's interesting about the Gospels is you have audiences of Jew, Gentile, Jew and Gentile. And then you have themes. Jesus is the exalted king. Jesus is the humble servant. Jesus is man and Jesus is God. You have you have these extremes emphasized in the Gospels. And then when you put them all together, you see that Jesus is the servant king, both God and man. And this is God's message to Jews and Gentiles, or everyone. And all four of these counts together give us a very clear picture of the gospel. Now, Luke doesn't cater to any one group. And we will see this as we go through the gospel. Luke is, has a very universal audience. He's, he wants to witness to everybody. He's, he's writing for everybody. He's not just interested in what Jews might think or what Gentiles might think. He's interested in what anybody might think. And he addresses Jews, which is obvious. He quotes a lot of Old Testament things. He he talks about Old Testament prophecies being fulfilled. He talks about Jewish customs and rituals. So, yeah, he includes Jews, but he also includes Gentiles. And we see this as he records different little little bits of information, different sayings, different verses taken from the Old Testament and words out of the different people's mouths, which show that God wants to save Gentiles as well as Jews. The first being is a, the clear statement in chapter 214, where the angel said at Christ's birth that he would be born for all men, not just Jews. He records Simeon that 
elderly gentleman in the temple who was long awaiting the Messiah's arrival. He records Simeon as saying that Christ would be a light to the Gentiles. John the Baptist is quoted as one who fulfills Isaiah's prophecy as a voice crying out in the wilderness so that all mankind would see God's salvation. And so we see this very universal scope. We see Jesus talking uh, in one instance to the Jews. And instead of using Jewish individuals to describe God's saving uh, mercy and grace, he uses the widow of Zarephath and Naaman the leper. And he actually makes them quite angry because he, he wants them to know that, hey, listen, I know you're Jewish and you think that's great. And it is great, but God can save Gentiles, too. Luke records Jesus's parable of the banquet in which those who should have come didn't the Jews. And so he goes out to the highways and byways and calls whoever wants to come to the wedding feast. All of these texts show us that Luke is trying to present Christ as the savior of the Gentiles, as well as the long awaited Messiah of the Jews. Luke places a space, special emphasis on Social outcasts. We also mentioned that briefly. In Luke 7, Jesus teaches the Pharisee about forgiveness and uses an immoral woman who is sitting at his feet, who is, is crying and pouring perfume on his feet and, and washing his feet with her, her tears and her hair. And the Pharisee looks at her and goes, oh, if you knew what kind of woman was touching you, she's got cooties. And Jesus makes a very clear statement to that Pharisee that anyone, even a harlot, even a social outcast, even somebody as, quote, sinful as this woman can be forgiven. We see him reaching out to Zacchaeus, the tax collector or publican, who is short, despised, and who gets saved. There is the story he gives of the repentance of the robber in Luke 23, the parable of the prodigal son, the two debtors, the, the publican. All of these parables all talk about people who, in the sight of most Jews, were just despised people. You didn't talk to them. You didn't associate with them. You stayed away from them because they were social lepers. And yet, all the way through Luke's gospel, Luke includes these people just to let us know that, listen, I don't care where you're at in your life. I don't care if you're living on the street. I don't care if you've been addicted to drugs. I don't care if you've been a prostitute. I don't care what kind of, quote, social stigma has been placed on you. God will save you if you repent and believe. We also mentioned last week that Luke shows us how women were used in God's plan of redemption more than any other gospel writer. Just far, far more, probably a 10 to 1 ratio. There are 13 women mentioned in Luke's gospel that appear nowhere else in the other gospels. And he includes them. And if you read, and as we find out, the women are the main characters in both the birth and resurrection stories of Christ. You read Matthew, um, other gospels concerning the resurrection and you see women in there they're mentioned but they're just minor characters in luke's gospel they're the main characters he also focuses on children 
and social relationships and issues of poverty and wealth and emphasizes prayers. He includes nine prayers in in his gospel that Jesus prayed. And seven of them don't appear in any of the other gospels. He talks about prayer all the way through in his teaching. There are parables on prayers and teachings on prayers that are never mentioned anywhere else. They're unique only to his gospel. And so as we see these kind of things, this will make his gospel unique to the other ones. And so as we go through, we'll point these things out. Now, what about the date of Luke's gospel? Nobody knows. You know, it's around 68 AD and, you know, some people think 70, some people, you know, 63, some 65, they don't know. The structure of Luke's gospel is similar to Mark and, and uh, Matthew. And uh, just as I said earlier, in chapters 1 through 3, it talks about his birth and the preparation for his ministry. And then in chapter 4, he begins to go into ministry all the way through chapters 4 through 9, emphasizes his, uh, a lot of his um, miracles he performed. And most of this all takes place in Galilee in the region up north. And then in chapters 10 through 19, Jesus begins to go from Galilee down to Jerusalem. And uh, he does a lot of his teachings are recorded in that section. And then at the end of the book, in chapters 20 through 24, of course, is his trial and his death and his burial and resurrection. So that is the general structure of Luke's gospel. And what's neat about Luke's gospel, which is different than all the other gospels, is the first four verses. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. Look there. Luke says this in Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Luke says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who, from the beginning, were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. Now, in these first four verses, Luke writes as a historian. Now, what's neat about this is none of the other Gospels have these little verses that kind of say, this is why I'm writing and this is who I'm writing to and, you know, kind of explaining. The other ones just start in. But Luke writes as a historian recording the events surrounding Jesus's life and death. And from these first four verses, you will learn three categories of truth or information that will help you understand Luke's Gospel. The information I'm going to give you from these verses will kind of orient you to everything we're going to learn in the months and years to come. Now, let's look at the motive for Luke's gospel. The motives for Luke's gospel are both stated and implied in these first four verses. First, we can see that Luke was unsatisfied with other accounts. He says... At the beginning, inasmuch as many have undertaken to an, to compile an account. Now, just stop there. Many have undertaken to a, compile an account. So, Luke, why are you writing another one? You know, if you have a really good dictionary, then why would you write another one? 
if you have a perfectly good instruction manual for how to run your microwave, why write another one? You see, this this creates a, a, a question. Why did Luke, if so many other people had written an account, including Matthew and Mark and John, why does he write another one? Well, he seems to be unsatisfied with what they wrote. He wants to include some things maybe that they didn't. And this is the second motive. It is implied from verse 3 that the reason Luke was unsatisfied with many other written accounts is that they either contained information that wasn't quite accurate or they didn't include enough information. Verse 3 says, It seems fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus. Luke thought it was important that Theophilus would understand some things that maybe weren't included in the other gospels. I mean, surely the other gospels aren't in error. So if he read Matthew or Mark or John, he wasn't saying, well, these other gospels contain error. So I'm trying to fix that. No, in that case, he would be saying, I'm writing my gospel account so that you can understand or see things that those people left out because I want to show you something different about Jesus. I want to include things they did not. Third motive is that Luke wants to write an accurate account as he has notice what the text says investigated everything carefully verse three investigated everything carefully which tells us that Luke wrote his gospel narrative in order that Theophilus might know notice what he says the exact truth the exact truth the middle of verse four. So we know that Luke has this motive. He has this friend or acquaintance or somebody knows named Theophilus. And he wants to present some things that either were inaccurate in uninspired accounts or were left out of the inspired accounts for his friend. And he wants to do it in a, an exact or precise, a precision way so that Theophilus can know certain things. Now, we don't know much about Theophilus. His name means lover of God. And some people have said, well, he he was obviously a believer. But the question is, is this a new name? This could be very well a, a name that was given him while he was a youth. And maybe the God being referred to was Zeus. We don't know. We basically just don't know anything about Theophilus. We do know from this title when he uses most excellent, Luke also wrote the book of Acts. And this little phrase, most excellent, when he calls him most excellent Theophilus, is also used by Luke in Acts 23, 26, 24, 3, and 26, 25 to refer to both Felix, Felix and Festus, who were the procurators of Judea. And so when he talks to them or records Paul talking to them, the phrase that Luke uses is most excellent Festus or most excellent Felix, which tells us that that might be a title for a very high ranking Roman official. So it could be, and again, we don't know that Theophilus was a very high ranking Roman official. Fourth, motive we see here 
is we must ask why Luke found it necessary, first of all, to write an account, though many others had done so before him. Secondly, why he wanted to write an accurate account. And third, why he thought it necessary to write it in consecutive order. Because notice the text says in verse three that I am starting from the beginning to write it to for you in consecutive order. If you don't have the NASB, it probably just says order. Well, why would he do that? What would be his motive for doing that? Because the gospel message, the historical events surrounding Jesus Christ must be understood in some sort of order. It could have been that Theophilus was an unbeliever. It could have been that Theophilus had heard some things about the gospel, was acquainted with Luke. Luke was um, talking with him and that Luke wanted to see him come to repentance and faith in Christ. And so Luke wrote this gospel account so that he could see, hopefully, Theophilus converted as a high-ranking Roman official. Or it could be that Theophilus was already a believer, and maybe he was a rich believer, and maybe Luke was writing this to him so that he could pay to have it published. We don't know. We don't know. Maybe he was just a believer, and Luke, knowing that he wasn't very schooled in the things of Christ decided to write the account. We just don't know for sure. But we do know that he did write this account and he did it to be accurate. He did it because he wanted to lay out in a very orderly manner the gospel story. And if Theophilus was a believer, then surely Luke wanted Theophilus to have enough information to know Jesus Christ better and to have enough information to effectively preach the gospel to others and to grow in sanctification. Fifth and finally, I think it is self-evident that Luke wrote his gospel account to preserve the gospel story. There are two ways that history is preserved. One way is through oral tradition. And it is a pretty reliable way. I mean, we may think that when you pass things on, they get corrupted and they do get changed. But if you're, you're very careful and you repeat things over and over again to somebody, you can communicate to them fairly accurately over a long period of time. You can preserve truth. Now, some of you um, can remember the days of uh, grade school or junior high. And you remember those days when, uh, and some of you are in maybe grade school or junior high. And you remember those days where you learned little ditties, little sayings, little, you know, rhymes that you don't want to teach your kids. These are things you learn out in the playground. And you don't teach your kids that, but all of a sudden they come home from school one day and what do they know? They know that saying that you learned when you were in the sixth grade. Now, how did that happen? It happens through the oral tradition of grade school. It happens through the oral tradition of junior hires. Year after year, the seventh graders teach it to the sixth graders. And then the sixth graders become seventh graders. And they teach it to the sixth graders. And it goes on for years and years, passing on this oral tradition with flawless and often noxious precision. And that's how oral tradition works. And then there's another way, a more accurate way to preserve history, and that is to write it down. When you write it down, the truth is written. Now, just like oral tradition can be corrupted, so when copyists make copies, things can be corrupted. 
But for the most part, a written account is much more sure than an oral account. And it is objective. That means it always says the same thing. When you look at the page, it says the same thing. Of course, over time, meanings of words can change. And so you have to go back and do research. And so it's not without its problems. But Luke decides to write another written account. And so these are the motives that Luke had. And this is why we have four Gospels. Now, let's talk about the method Luke used to write his gospel. These first four verses tell us quite a bit about that also. Let's say you were wanting to write an accurate historical account of something that happened in the past. Maybe something that happened in the Vietnam War or something. How would you go about writing that account? Well, if you wanted to write an accurate account, you could read things, right? You could read things from other people who had written about it. And that would be good, especially if the people who wrote were firsthand witnesses. And lo and behold, that is exactly what Luke says he did. He actually gives us a five-fold methodology for how he compiled his gospel. The first thing Luke did is he gathered information from other written accounts. If you look, he says, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of things accomplished among us. Now, just stop there. Obviously, Luke was familiar with and knew about these other accounts. He read them, and so he got information from them. Not only that, not only did he read other accounts so he could get information about it, Luke, secondly, also gathered information from eyewitnesses. Luke says in verses 1 and 2, he wanted to compile this account of things accomplished among us just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were what? Eyewitnesses and servants of the word. So he not only looked at written accounts, which he was very familiar with from verse 1, but he also went to eyewitnesses. And these are always the most reliable sources of information, eyewitnesses. But they aren't flawless. Sometimes eyewitnesses have problems. Now, the word accomplished, as the NASB um, has it, which might also be translated fulfilled, is is a verb tense, which means this. It means when Luke says that these things were accomplished among us, what he is saying is, is that these things happened at a point in time, but we're still being impacted by the results of their having happened. And he's saying these things which you know about, which I know about, which have changed history, which have changed people, which have shaken the whole Roman world. These things I want to write about and I want to tell you about. And this can be seen in the fact that we are here today because of the impact of those events. Here we are in this church building Worshiping God, believing in Jesus. Why? Because there was an event that happened at a point in time in history, and that event still has implications which are incurring, uh, incurred today or concur today. They are changing the way history is forming itself. When you look at 
the gospel, there is no other event in history that ever happened that has changed history and men and women and children and just the whole existence of mankind in the world than the person and work of Jesus Christ. And Luke makes it clear that though he is included as one who was impacted by the life of Jesus, when he says these things have happened among us and he includes himself, that Jesus's life impacted him and that he drew information. Notice what the text says from the beginning, those who were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Now, who do you think those were? The apostles, the disciples. Sure, you can have an eyewitness who wasn't a disciple and no doubt Luke ran into those, but his most reliable information would have come from the apostles themselves, men who lived with Jesus from the beginning. Turn to Acts chapter 1, which was also written by Luke. Acts chapter 1. Here he says, he received this information that was handed down by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Now look at Acts chapter 1, verse 21. In this context, the apostles are in Jerusalem. Peter has just summarized the life, betrayal, and consequent suicide of Judas. The 12 disciples have now been reduced to 11 because of Judas's suicide. And they are going to appoint another, a 12th, to replace him. And verse 21 says this, Therefore it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Then, of course, Matthias is chosen because he is a man who was with them from the beginning. Now, isn't that interesting? You have Matthew, you have Mark, you have Luke, you have John and Matthias is never mentioned traveling around with them. But he was there the whole time. It makes me wonder how many other people were there the whole time that were just never mentioned. You know, you, you're reading um, the scriptures and all of a sudden you come across a place that says, and do we not have a right to take along a believing wife just as Peter Thinking, Peter had a wife? Sure he did. He took her along? Sure he did. Well, she's never mentioned. No. She was there. Isn't that interesting? But here we find out that Luke is drawing from these men who were eyewitnesses from the beginning. And he calls them servants of the word, which can be taken two different ways. You are either a servant of The incarnate word, because in John's gospel, John presents Jesus as what? The word of God. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So he can, you can take it as Jesus is the one being served. They are servants of the word. Or you can take it as those who are servants of the word of God, which is probably the better 
way to take it, but either one works. Anyways, Luke decides that he is going to draw his information from these witnesses. And of course, their their witness would be perfectly accurate. Now, you might wonder how that is. If you've ever been involved in a court case, have you ever been involved in a court case? It seems that um, every single person uh, in the office has been called to, you know, serve jury duty. And uh, it is amazing how when you're serving on a jury and you're listening to these arguments, how people who are witnesses, who were all there, who all witnessed something, they all disagree and come to radically different conclusions. And you're wondering, are they lying? Were they there? And you're thinking, how in the world could you have these people all in room, all swearing an oath to tell the truth, all tell exactly opposite things? And this is the bane of judges and juries and lawyers. But there is something different about the apostles and their witness. They had divine supernatural help so that when they spoke, when they told the gospel story, it was perfect. Turn in your Bibles to John 14. John chapter 14. Verse 26. This is Jesus's upper room discourse. With the disciples. And in John 14, 26, Jesus is telling him how he's going to send the Holy Spirit, the helper, the comforter, the encourager. And he says this, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. You know, you might wonder, well, how could they remember all that? I mean, you know, three years with Jesus is a long time. I mean, how can you have, I mean, think about this. How can you have, you know, four different gospel writers all talking about events that happened over a three-year period of time. And whenever they talk about the same things, they don't contradict. That's just, it's just a miracle. It is a miracle. They don't contradict. Why? For this reason. Because God gave the apostles the ability to remember things perfectly and to relay them perfectly. Because there was no written word of God, the apostles were needed as living proclamations that were accurate. This is why in Mark 13:11 and Luke 12:11 they both contain the promises of Jesus to the disciples, do not worry about what you are to speak for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you are to say, which is what you wish would happen when you're a preacher and you lose your sermon notes right before you have to preach. But it doesn't happen. And there are specific examples of this found in the Gospels and Acts. For instance, in John chapter 2, verse 22, John writes for us the account where Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. Well, he's in the temple mount and they all think he's talking about Herod's huge temple, which took 46 years to build. And so they all look at him and say, Dude, now they didn't really say that, but you know, in the modern day vernacular at our house, dude, um, how can you destroy this temple and build it up and, and raise it back up in three days? Because it took 46 years to build this temple and you're going to do this all by yourself. 
And then John says this in verse 22. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. They remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. You see, what happened was, is right after Jesus died, then the promise of the Holy Spirit came and the promises that were directly given to the apostles that they would remember what Jesus taught started kicking in and they all started getting up. Oh, so that's what Jesus was talking about. Do you remember? And they started remembering. We see the same thing in John chapter 12, verse 16 at the triumphal entry. When John says these things, his disciples did not understand at first. But when Jesus was glorified, that is, after he died, after he was buried, after he was raised again, after the Holy Spirit was given, when he was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. So what happened is they encountered all of these events in Jesus's life and they didn't really understand. The disciples were pretty clueless. I mean, even when Jesus told them, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and they're going to kill me. They're going to bury me. And and on the third day, I'm going to rise again. They just look, you know, like deer in the headlights. They were totally clueless. They, as, and then when he said, you know, I have to go die. And they looked at him like, what are you talking about? And what happened was, is after Jesus did die, after he was buried, after he was resurrected and glorified and ascended into heaven and the church started and the Holy Spirit came, all of a sudden, all these events over the last three years that they had all experienced, all of a sudden, they begin to understand them. They begin to see their connection with the Old Testament. They begin to see with great insight why Jesus said the things he did and why he um, uh, taught the way he taught and just... All of these things became very clear to them because of the Holy Spirit. And that is why when Luke says, I went to those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, he knows that that information is true and accurate because it was true and it is accurate because the aid of the Holy Spirit who moved the apostles to communicate the truth in perfect precision. Third, Luke investigated everything carefully. There is nothing more humiliating than to write a paper or to write a book or to write an article that all of a sudden somebody does a little bit more research and finds out that you lied, that you blew it. It discredits the whole thing. When, when you haven't done your research right and you all of a sudden make some inaccurate statements, even though, you know, 90% of the book might be great. If 10% of it is bad and it's theologically flawed or, or just contains historical inaccuracies, then what happens? People reading, oh man, this thing's, you know, it's unreliable. And so Luke tells us that he has gone to these eyewitnesses, servants of the word, and then investigated everything carefully. He followed everything along very carefully like an investigator would to research a murder or whatever to find out exactly what happened. He he must have went maybe he went and talked to uh, Zacharias and Elizabeth. Maybe if they were still alive, you know, maybe he went and uh, he looked up uh, different people who knew them. Maybe he went to the places and he saw people. Maybe he talked to the, to, to the lame beggar who was healed or the blind man who was healed or the lepers who were cleansed and said, what happened? Tell me everything. 
He went out and he investigated everything carefully and tried to accumulate all this information. Do you want to know anybody else who talked to Jesus? And so this really seemed to be a passion for him. And he wants to communicate every detailed account. And that is why his gospel is the most detailed. Because he did investigate everything carefully. You may think Matthew's gospel is bigger because it has more chapters. And you just wait and see how long it takes to get through chapter 1. I mean, all you have to do is flip the page over there and find out it has 80 verses. Of course, many of the details would have to be dug out by good questions. You know, you go up to Peter, who is into fishing. And you say, Peter, tell me what happened about this incident. And and Peter just wants to tell you how many fish there were. And John's a fisherman. If you read his gospel, he always says, and they caught 153 fish. That is a fisherman, people. They tell you always how many you got. I'm surprised he didn't provide the length of the biggest one. And, and yet these guys, they, they, don't, they don't care about a lot of the details. But Luke, being a doctor, interested in medical things. So, so tell me about this woman's disease. Well, I don't know. Jesus just healed her. Well, you know, tell me, what was the thing? Well, she, you know, she had a hemorrhage. For how long? See, and Luke pries out of these witnesses all of this detail. And when we read his gospel, I mean, it's, it's, it's detailed. I mean, you, you, you will see this as you go through the gospel of Luke. There are just lots of details that the other guys just kind of mention in passing. And Luke goes into a lot of detail. He wants to describe all the minutiae. So Luke, with the mind of a doctor diagnosing a patient, pries every bit of information he can out of the witnesses he speaks to. He, he tries to accumulate all of this data and he compiles it into his own account. We also learn that Luke investigated everything from the beginning. I mean, we have mentioned this already, but he starts from the beginning. I mean, way back from the beginning. Before Jesus' conception, he goes all the way back, all the way back to the forerunner. He wants to go back to the place where he talks about the conception and birth of john the baptist who would then connect jesus and his whole life with the last book of the old testament the book of malachi which promised that a forerunner would come and what is interesting is luke goes back and there's see the jews have been waiting for 400 years you know malachi writes you know i'm going to send one and elijah's going to come he's going to be a forerunner and you know okay where is he where is he 400 years now if you think our our nation is only a couple hundred years they've been waiting a long time a long time for the fulfillment to come and so luke wants to go back and say okay this is what happened this guy zacharias was in the temple and he was doing his service and we're going to learn all about him how the angel appeared to him and his wife had the miraculous conception in her old age and she she gets pregnant. And then what's neat about it is, is after she gets pregnant, then Mary gets pregnant and then Mary goes to visit her and hear these two pregnant women and they have discussions. One is going to give birth to the forerunner. The other one is going to give birth to the Messiah. It's really exciting. So Luke goes all the way back from the very beginning because he wants to set the the pace just as you you were to read a book um if you've ever uh, read a book and uh, maybe read a middle of a book somebody says oh read this and you read this thing and it's you don't know what's going on you don't know the characters you don't know any of their background you don't know any significance you know it's like somebody writing you a 10 page letter and you're starting at page five you don't know 
And so Luke, wanting to help the Gentiles understand and wanting to have the Jews see the connection between the Old Testament and the New, he goes back farther than anyone else and starts with this couple who are visited by an angel who have this child who's going to be the forerunner promised at the end of the Old Testament. Finally, Luke wrote his gospel in consecutive order. Notice what he says. He says that he starts from the beginning to write it out for you in consecutive order. Now, a lot of people look at that and they, they read in that chronological order, but that's not what it's saying. It's saying consecutive order or well-ordered or one thing after next, not necessarily chronological. And we're going to encounter that. For instance, when, when Luke is talking about John the Baptist, he wants to, he wants us to understand the bulk of everything there is to know about John the Baptist. So what he does is he takes information about John the Baptist that is way in the future, and he brings it to the beginning of his gospel so that we kind of understand John the Baptist, the whole picture. And so as Luke goes through, he has compiled this information. He's kind of uh, assembling it in pieces. You know how when you're reading a book sometimes and you're going along and all of a sudden the, the author will stop when he mentions somebody and says, this person you know, grew up here and did this or did that. And he gives you a little biographical sketch of that person so that you can understand their significance in the story. And that is how Luke writes his gospel. He takes information, sticks them all together so that you kind of have a clump. So you understand in a more consecutive or systematic or orderly way, the gospel account. And that's what he tells us he attempts to do. And so those are the methods that Luke applies. Now, our final thing is what about the content of Luke's gospel? As mentioned earlier, Luke is not just proclaiming a gospel message. He is writing a history. He is writing God's work of redemption or salvation in the lives of mankind and all the events surrounding the person and work of Jesus Christ. He's not writing a biography of Jesus. Jesus is a central character, but many other people are mentioned who all together fit into God's plan of salvation for you and for me. And the content of Luke's gospel is the historical events surrounding this key central person, but that it's not just a biography of that person. The apostles, with the help of the Holy Spirit, have laid out for us all of this great information and teaching about Jesus. And Luke is trying to show us kind of the big overarching grand picture of all of this. And he does it not only in his gospel, but also in what? In Acts. See, Luke wrote Acts, and so Luke is trying to show us this huge flow of redemption starting before Jesus was even conceived, carrying all the way through his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, the beginning of the church, the giving of the Holy Spirit, and all of that all the way into pretty much the end of all the apostles. That's what he's trying to show, that big, huge chunk of redemptive history, which, of course has changed the whole face of history. And we know that the word of God is what Luke proclaimed. Sure, these are Luke's words, but these are also God's 
words. This is the word of God through the mouth of Luke. We know that God's word is living. We know that it's active and we are sharper than any two-edged sword. It's piercing into the innermost being. It's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It is a hammer that shatters hard hearts and a fire that consumes. We know that God's word is living and active. So Luke, as he's writing this account, is also penning the living and active word of God. This is not just a bunch of letters on a page. This is living, life-transforming truth. Listen, Theophilus is dead. He died a long time ago. So why are we reading this book written to Theophilus? Because this book, though written to Theophilus, is written to all the world that they might know the word of God and his will for mankind. This, so to speak, is Dr. Luke's medicine prescribed to both Jew and Gentile that they might be saved and cured from the consequences of their sin. And you and I, we are miserable creatures. We are born in sin, conceived in sin. We sin from our youth. Adam's curse has fallen upon us. We grow up in this wicked world, deceived and deluded and enslaved to our sins. All the while thinking we're free and masters of our own destiny. And it's not until some faithful soul tells us the gospel message or by God's providence, a Bible ends up in our hands and we read it that we can actually be delivered from the delusion and deception and wrath of God, which abides in all of us. And the content of Luke's gospel is that hope is here. That the very hope that the Jews hoped in, the long-awaited Messiah, is here. And he is a Messiah, not just for Jews, but for Jews and Gentiles, for you and for me. He was born by miraculous conception, by a virgin, in the predicted place, at the predicted time. Fulfilling all the predictions of the Messiah, and this man's name was Jesus, who ministered and spoke the word of God, who grew in wisdom and stature. He did miracles, but was still rejected, taught great truth, but was still rejected, presented the kingdom to his countrymen, and they had him handed over to the Gentiles to be crucified to death. And it seemed as though all hope was lost, and maybe Jesus wasn't the Messiah, because after all, he was killed. But then three days later, he rose again from the dead, fulfilling all the prophecies that were spoken of him and all of his teachings that he had said before he died. He conquered death and showed that he had power over death and death could not hold him because he was the perfect and holy one. And this Jesus who was raised from the dead has ascended into heaven where right now he rules over all the universe, including you, including me, and everyone you know. He sees in your life. He sees in your heart. He knows everything you have done and everything you will do. And right now, he sees through you, and all things in your life are open and laid bare before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Luke is presenting this man. And some of you he sees as his children, his brothers, his sisters, forgiven, washed, 
perfect and clean. Others of you, he sees as his enemies. And he hates you because you reject him and you reject his father. You reject his truth and you will not submit to him. But because he loves all of his creatures, he not only hates those who reject him, he also loves them. He loves them all and offers them the free gift of eternal life. And this is Luke's message. Luke's message is that God will save you if you repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Luke's message is that Jesus died to free you from your sin and its consequences. God is willing to change your life, to wash you clean, to transform you. He is willing to take all of the sins of all of your past and forget them, to wash them clean, to transform your life, to give you everything you need to walk in obedience to his word, to make you into a new person, to make you happy and blessed. He is willing to do all of that. But you need to be willing to repent, to turn from your sins and your wicked ways and receive him as your savior, your Messiah, and your hope to make him Lord and master of your life. This is what is the content of Luke's gospel. It's all driving to that purpose, to let you and me know that there is hope, there is freedom from salvation, but it is only had in one name. As a matter of fact, in Acts, Luke records... Peter saying, there is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. And it is the only way you can be saved. Look at your life. Do you know God? I mean, really, do you know him or do you know about him? Do you know Jesus or do you know about him? Do you do you like to read the word of God? Or not? Do you like being around God's people or not? Do you like serving in the church or not? Do you hunger and thirst after righteousness or not? You see, these are the qualities of somebody who has undergone transformation. There are many who come to church. Oh, they call themselves Christians. They give Jesus lip service, but with their lives and with their hearts, they deny him. And so I present to you the very message that we are going to be looking at for many, many weeks to come. And that is this. Have you repented of your sins and received Jesus as your savior? Have you got to the place in your life where you realize you are a sinner? You are not in control. You are enslaved to your appetite. You can't say no to things. You are living a lie. You are deceiving people. And though you are religious and though you go to church and though you're here this morning, you know, you're not saved. You know you are rejecting Christ. You know you don't want to submit to him. And if that is you, then today is the day of salvation. It is never tomorrow. You might not live till tomorrow. Just read in the the paper that one movie star just died of a rare heart disease all of a sudden. You don't know how long you're going to live. Jesus is set before you as the Savior, the Messiah, the Redeemer, the loving friend who is willing to forgive you if you are willing to repent and receive him. And he is also set before you as judge of the living and the dead. 
And if you will not repent, he will not be your friend. And so if you have never given your life to Christ, I hope you do that right now in your heart. I hope right now in your heart, you make a commitment to God that you are going to turn from your way, that you would ask Christ to forgive you, to transform you, to save you, and make a commitment to follow him all the days of your life, not trusting in your own good works to save you, but trusting in Christ and Christ alone, his work on the cross, his death, his burial, his resurrection, only in that to save you. And he will, and he will change you, and he'll give you all the resources you need to walk with him for all eternity. Think about it. And when you leave here today, make sure you have either in your heart made a commitment to accept Christ or don't deceive yourself and just say, Lord, I'm rejecting you again. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now knowing that you are a merciful God, knowing that you are kind and compassionate that you want to save people. You want to change them. You want to forgive them. You want to wash all their sins whiter than snow. Father, you want to make them more like Christ. And Father, you are willing to extend so much grace and mercy to us. You have already. And Father, I pray that if there are any people here who have never really given their lives to you, who have never really come to the place where they have repented and received you as their personal Lord and Savior, I pray that they would do that now. I pray that they would realize that these gospel accounts here are warnings. Sure, they record history. Sure, they record incredible acts and feats done by your son, and by you in the course of history. But Father, they are, they are letters, accounts of judgment for those who reject them. And Father, I pray that there would be fear, fear that would move to repentance and faith in Christ. And for those of us who know you, Father, I just pray that we would be so thankful and in the weeks to come, we would just be blessed, that we would be changed, that your word from the pen of Luke would so mold our lives and transform us that we would never be the same. That, Father, we would love you more fervently, evangelize the lost more diligently, and give you more glory until Jesus comes to take us to himself, or until, Father, we die and go to be with you in glory. And, Father, we just pray all of these things in your name, because we know for certain they are your will. Amen.